Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, everyone, to episode 101 of Criminology. I'm Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. Mr. Morford, how are you today? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing great, man. I am ready for some warmer weather. I'll tell you that. I'm ready to get out. I want to do some fishing. I want to ride my motorcycle. I just want to wear shorts, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I was looking at some of my fishing stuff yesterday, thinking uh, a few more weeks, just got to make it into, into April. Yeah, we don't have that much longer, but I'm, I get jealous of those listeners that live in warmer climates. I'll, I'll put it that way. All right, buddy, before we get into this episode, we have some new Patreon supporters. So let's go ahead and give our shout outs. We had Bora Park, LaDonna Hobson, Amy Barron Manoram. Kelly Blazek, Katherine Anderson, and then last but not least, Jessica Shaw jumped out at our highest level. So some great support. We really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you all for that support. It's really amazing. And if anyone out there is on the fence and thinking about supporting criminology on Patreon, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash criminology. CrimeCon is coming up very quickly. Time's running out to get tickets if you want to go. There's only about two months left. So go out to crimecon.com. Use our promo code criminology2020. By doing that, you'll save 10% off your standard CrimeCon badge. Come and visit us on Podcast Row. It's really a lot of fun. CrimeCon is this May, the first through the third in Orlando. We hope to see you there. We've had a lot of people reaching out too lately, asking us about some of those older episodes. Anything over six months old from our previous episodes, you can find exclusively on Stitcher Premium. That app comes with a free 30-day trial, so you've got nothing to lose. You can go in there and get your binge on. And we've got all the old classic season one, Zodiac season two, Golden State Killer and lots of other great stuff. So if you're looking for that stuff, you can go out and find it. Stitcher Premium app. All right, Morph, it's time to jump into this case. We are talking about the brutal and heinous murders of a mother and her two teenage daughters. This occurred while they were vacationing in Florida, and these murders shocked communities, not only in the sunshine state of Florida, but back where the family was from, in their home state of Ohio. The murders went unsolved for three years until a handwriting tip finally led authorities to their killer. On the morning of Sunday, June 1st, 1989, boaters discovered the bloated bodies of three females in Tampa Bay, Florida, near St. Petersburg, and they called the Coast Guard. The first call came in at 9.16 a.m. when... People aboard a boat named the Charlie Girl 
saw a body at the southern edge of a shipping lane approaching the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. 23 minutes later, at 9.39 a.m., four Coast Guard crew members in a rigid hold inflatable found the pleasure vessel named Amber Waves, which had found a second body. Then at 10.06 a.m., a second call came in. The vessel Susie found another body two miles southeast of the St. Pete Pier. The Coast Guard took the first body to Bayboro Station in downtown St. Petersburg before retrieving the second body. At 10.38 a.m., the Coast Guard retrieved the body found in the shipping lane. By around noon of that day, all three bodies had been taken to Bayboro Station and the St. Petersburg police had been called in. All three females were nude from the waist down. One was wearing a t-shirt over a swimsuit top. The other two were wearing only t-shirts. The victim's hands were tied behind their backs with a rope, and their feet were also bound, but with a different rope. The rope on one of the victim's hands was broken, and their mouths were covered in duct tape. The bodies had been weighed down with concrete blocks that weighed 35 to 40 pounds, and were attached by 6 to 8 feet of anchor rope. The knots were the same on each rope, and each was tied to the victim's neck. A member of the Coast Guard later said the victim's faces were frozen in horror, something he would never forget. Preliminary autopsy reports showed that the women did not die as a result of trauma such as shooting or stabbing, but it didn't pinpoint exactly how they died. A full autopsy report later showed cause of death as asphyxiation, but said this could have happened from drowning or the rope being attached to their necks. Even though the bodies were submerged in water, decomposition had set in due to the hot summer temperatures, making identification tougher. On top of that, the two-day immersion of the bodies in salt water washed away any evidence that would determine if the three had been sexually assaulted. Authorities also could not determine if the women were alive or dead when they entered the water. At that time, police did not know if the bodies were thrown off a boat or put in the bay from shore. Because the bodies were found on the side of St. Petersburg, it was St. Petersburg police that were the investigating agency. On June 8, 1989, four days after the bodies were found, a maid at the Days Inn on Rocky Point noticed that the three women in room 251 hadn't checked out yet. When she knocked on the door, there was no answer, so she used her master key to enter the room. She could see that the guest's personal belongings were still in the room, but the guests weren't there. Knowing that three bodies were found in Tampa Bay, the maid told the manager, and he called the police. An officer arrived shortly after and entered room 251. There was no evidence the room had been slept in. The room contained luggage and women's apparel, including bathing suits, a camera, and souvenirs from Disney World. And it didn't appear that the women were preparing to check out. But there was no sign of foul play in the room. Police learned that the three women staying in the hotel room were 36-year-old Joan Rogers and her daughters, 17-year-old Michelle and 14-year-old Christy. They were visiting Orlando from Ohio. Police developed the roll of film, but it only contained normal vacation pictures. One was of Michelle inside the motel room staring at the camera. But it was the very last photo that was the most haunting. 
It was a shot from the motel balcony of the sun setting over Tampa Bay. A Tampa police sergeant ordered a patrol officer to a boat ramp area near the hotel along the Courtney Campbell Causeway to search for the Ohio women's car, a 1986 blue two-door Oldsmobile Calais. The officer found the car about a mile or so from the hotel on a public boat ramp halfway to the Pinellas side of the parkway. One of the front seats was pushed forward to allow a backseat passenger to get out of the car. The car contained playing cards and a map, typical items taken along for a long trip. According to court documents, among the items recovered from the car was a handwritten note on Days End Stationery and a Clearwater Beach brochure. The note read, turn right west on 60, two and a half miles before the bridge on the right side at light blue with white. Printed in pencil on the brochure were the words Courtney Campbell Causeway Route 60 Days In. To the left above the map were the words Boy Scout and Columbus. Two names for a road that runs east-west through Tampa. St. Petersburg police confirmed that the car was owned by and registered to Joan M. Rogers of Wilshire, Ohio. Through dental records, police identified the three bodies found in the bay as Joan Rogers and her daughters, Michelle and Christy. On June 6, 1989, Joan's husband, Hal Rogers, had reported his wife and daughters missing to Ohio police after the trio never returned from their Florida trip. They were expected home on the day their bodies were found. Hal had no idea when he was reporting his family missing just what was unfolding in Florida. It would be the beginning of a nightmare for him. Hal Rogers married Joan Etzler four months after she graduated from Crestview High School in Convoy, Ohio in 1971. Hal had graduated the year before. On February 22, 1972, their first daughter, Michelle Lee Rogers, was born followed by their second daughter, Christy Eugenia Rogers, on October 6, 1974. Hal Rogers was a second-generation farmer. Around 1976, he purchased land in Van Wert County, Ohio, from his father. Hal grew up on this land with his brothers and sister and ran a dairy farm where he raised 70 to 80 cows. Every morning, he woke up at 5.30 a.m. to start milking. Michelle and Christy Rogers took part in the daily farm routine. Michelle was supposed to enter her senior year at Crestview in the fall of 1989, and Christy was going to be a freshman at the same school. Michelle was on the dairy team that ranked 21st out of 140 other teams statewide. She wanted to go to college and become a veterinarian. So more if a lot of people listening might hear that and think, okay, what kind of school has a dairy team? Yeah. Well, a school in Ohio where I'm from, you know, it it might sound very strange to many people outside of the Midwest. I can't imagine that in New Jersey, they have too many dairy teams. I could be wrong. I think they actually do down in in South Jersey where I'm from. It's, it's, there's a lot of farmland and a lot of, uh, 
Dairyland and some of the schools around here, they sort of cater to that agricultural lifestyle and careers. So they have a lot of different courses and, and programs down here for that as well. Okay. So maybe it's more widespread than, than I would have thought. I, I would not have imagined it being found in New Jersey. I, I would assumed it was more of a Midwestern thing, but I, I still think a lot of people listening will find that very odd to, you know, to find something like that at a high school. Michelle was considered a tomboy. She was pretty with brown hair and brown eyes. She wore glasses and was considered quiet and shy, but she did like to talk a lot with her friends. Christy, on the other hand, was very outgoing and sociable. The wild one of the two, always laughing and goofing off. But, you know, really both of these girls were considered just normal teenagers from a small town. When Michelle was 14 years old, her uncle, John Rogers, who was Hal's brother, started coming into her bedroom late at night. Sometimes he had a knife, and other times he dragged her back to his trailer where he tied her up, raped her, and tape-recorded her screams. The only person Michelle shared these awful secrets with was her best friend, a girl named Holly Coleman. Two years later, John Rogers was arrested and charged with raping Michelle. He also assaulted an 18-year-old woman. Police confiscated audio cassette tapes and a videotape John had recorded while raping the girls. They arrested him in February 1988 and charged him with two rapes. You would think that Michelle's parents would have been disgusted by what happened to their daughter, but justice for Michelle was out of her reach, or rather it was forced out of her reach. Her family did not support her claims or really even believe her despite the video evidence Hal Rogers tried to force Michelle to visit John in jail before child abuse counselors stepped in and intervened. Shortly after, Hal bailed his brother out of jail. Joan Rogers also tried denying the assaults ever happened, and her paternal grandmother, Irene Rogers, wrote a letter to Michelle threatening her if she testified. The rape charge was dropped. And the other rape case dragged on for over a year before John Rogers was sentenced to prison for 7 to 25 years in April of 1989. And more if I think a lot of people hear this and they would find it very hard to believe. It's tough for me to think about, you know, having two daughters of my own, hearing this from them and not believing them. I, I just can't imagine it. And that's going to be tough for for Michelle, who shares this information with the people in the world that are supposed to protect her the most, and, and they're doing everything they can to sort of discount it. I don't know if it's a case of them just being in shock and just saying there's no way, uh, or just flat out in denial, but uh, what that must have been turmoil for her to, to go through. Yeah, and unfortunately... You know, over the years, especially 60s, 70s, 80s, this was all too common. You know, a lot of women who came forward with these type of claims, they just weren't believed. And that had to have been a heartbreaking scenario to know what happened to you, to have the courage to bring it up to, especially to your family, and then to have your family not believe you. It had to be devastating. 
Some wondered if John Rogers had a hand in the murders, possibly setting up the women as part of some revenge scheme for him going to prison, and police would explore that angle. As the investigation into the Florida triple murder began, authorities retraced the girls' steps from the time they left Ohio up until their bodies were found. Joan and her daughters left Wilshire, Ohio at around 1.30 p.m. on Friday, May 26th, and stayed the night in Dalton, Georgia at a Best Western. They arrived in Jacksonville, Florida, May 27th, and stayed overnight. On May 28th, they went to the Jacksonville Zoo, followed by the Silver Springs attraction west of Ocala. They then drove to Titusville and checked into the Quality Inn Kennedy Space Center. From there, the trio drove to Orlando and went to SeaWorld on May 29th. Late that night, they checked in at the Gateway Inn on International Drive using a Quest International card to qualify for a 50% discount on the normal $60 room rate. Someone made a collect call on May 29th and another the next day. A third call was placed to the Days Inn on Rocky Point in Tampa. Joan and the girls spent one day at Disney World, and then they visited Epcot Center the next day. They left Orlando at 9.35 a.m. on June 1st and headed for Tampa. This was set to be their final destination before returning back to Ohio. They checked in at the Days Inn on Rocky Point near the Courtney Campbell Causeway at 12.28 p.m. Police knew that Joan and the girls were still in their hotel room at 12.30 p.m. because Michelle Rogers had called her boyfriend Jeff Feesby at home. Someone also called Bush Gardens. The girls left room 251 sometime after that and never returned. You know, really up to this point, this seemed like a regular vacation with the three cramming as much activity into their vacation as they possibly could. Police interviewed Feesby about the phone call he got from Michelle, but he said it was a normal call with Michelle wishing him a happy birthday and telling him about their adventures so far to that point. Michelle didn't mention anything about meeting anyone during the trip, and she didn't report anything unusual. A few days later, police publicly sought help in locating a powerboat that might have been involved in the murders. Police described the boat as blue and white and 20 to 25 feet long. It was covered and being towed on a twin-axle trailer pulled by a black blazer or bronco. The boat was seen at the Days Inn on Rocky Point on June 1st, the day the three disappeared. Back in Wilshire, Ohio, police had contacted Hal Rogers and informed him of his family's deaths and the match via dental records. Hal did not go to Florida to be close with Joan and his daughters because he had to tend to the farm. But there's no doubt he was devastated by what had unfolded. The Wilshire locals were also devastated by the murders isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. 
We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. Florida authorities were learning more about the Rogers family. They found out about John Rogers' assaults on Michelle, but did not believe that he murdered her, Christy and Joan. For one thing, he was in custody at the time. So, you know, barring any type of arranged hit or him orchestrating this murder, it seemed like a blind alley. Police believe the killer was someone local to the Tampa area. Police originally said the Rogers family had no ties to Florida and had never been to Florida, but this wasn't true. Hal Rogers had friends in the Riverview, Florida area, about 23 miles from Tampa. His parents, Wayne and Irene Rogers, wintered in Sarasota and Bradenton for years along with his grandfather. Espy Rogers. Espy had traveled to the area for almost 30 years. Finally, John Rogers visited the Bradenton area either in February or March 1989 while out on bail for the assault on the 18-year-old woman. To some, Hal Rogers himself acted very strangely after the murders of his family. Homicide investigators described him as cold and bizarre. He said, this is one of the weirdest guys that they had ever confronted. He attempted to date Michelle's friends not long after the funeral. Holly Coleman, Michelle's best friend, said in 1991 that Hal called and asked her out, and he made suggestive remarks just hours before she was questioned by St. Petersburg police that same year. Hal scared this woman enough to report him to the investigators. And more if I don't think there's any doubt, this was very bizarre behavior in the wake of these brutal murders, you know, your wife, your daughters, it disturbed investigators. And I know we all hear that you shouldn't judge somebody by how they deal with loss or catastrophic loss of family members. You can't judge how they act because everybody processes grief differently. But I think it's very unusual to process that grief through trying to date your daughter's friends. That's very unusual. Yeah, very, very strange. Bank records showed that Hal Rogers wrote himself a check in the amount of $7,000 on June 6, 1989, just five days after his family's murders. He told investigators he needed cash in case he had to fly to Florida to look for his wife and daughters. Hal showed investigators the money. He was carrying $1,000 cash on him, and the other $6,000 was in a bank bag in his truck. He also told investigators that he had filed for divorce several times, but never followed through on it. He and Joan last talked about divorce about six months to a year before she was killed. At that time, he had moved into a trailer on his farm for about a week, but moved back into the family home. Not long after the murders, Howe received a postcard from Joan. It was dated May 29th from Orlando. It read, stayed the night at Titusville leaving for SeaWorld, then Disney World tonight for three nights. 
Weather is hot and humidity is very high, 98%. Kids having a great time, dragging me everywhere, seen Silver Springs and went on glass bottom boat ride. Better go. Have to get out of bed. Love ya. Take care. Don't work too hard. Despite the Rogers family background and Hal's bizarre actions after the murders, police said that neither Hal nor his brother John were involved in the murders and they continued on with the investigation. There were several theories floating around Tampa about the murders, but detectives believe the women met someone at the motel pool, the lounge, or the restaurant. They thought that maybe the killer bragged about having a big boat and offered to give them a ride on the water, and the trio agreed. Authorities said that sometime between 12.30 p.m. on June 1st, when Michelle called her boyfriend, and 2 p.m., the three victims got into the car and drove to the boat ramp. What happened after that was a mystery. But a little over a week after the bodies were found, a woman and her husband came forward and told police they had seen the Rogers car at 2 p.m. on the 1st. The husband had made a comment about the car being from Ohio. This info was significant because it narrowed down the time frame to one and a half hours, during which people near Rocky Point may have seen Joan Rogers and her two daughters. Even though authorities appealed for people to come forward who may have seen them, no one did. Two weeks after the murders, police revealed a little more info on the case. The stationery found in the Rogers car with written directions was determined to have been written by Joan Rogers. A Tampa police detective compared the handwriting to handwriting samples from her home in Ohio, which indicated Joan had written the directions. A more in-depth handwriting analysis was done by FBI agent James Mathis, and he too determined that the handwriting was Joan's. But the handwriting on the brochure was not Joan's, and it wasn't Michelle's or Christie's either. Additionally, a fingerprint expert found a palm print on the brochure that did not belong to any of the women. Meanwhile, detectives were still trying to locate the boat on the tandem trailer towed by a dark-colored blazer Bronco and made another public appeal for information. This public appeal resulted in a flood of tips, between 400 and 500 tips in all, but none proved useful. Authorities began handing flyers out at the boat launch and offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of a murder suspect or suspects. But as time passed, the leads fizzled until November 1989. That's when authorities got their first and only break in the case to that point. On May 14, 1989, two Canadian women were vacationing in Madeira Beach, Florida, when they met a man who called himself Dave Posno. He offered to take the woman for a boat ride the following day. But only one of the women, a 24-year-old blonde social worker, went for that ride. The ride went without incident, and Posno encouraged her to bring her friend along for a sunset cruise later that same day. The friend once again declined to go, but the social worker did go. The man drove the boat several miles offshore into the Gulf of Mexico. He then forced himself onto the social worker who protested his advances. He showed the victim duct tape and threatened to tape her mouth shut. He asked her this question, is sex worth losing your life over? She continued to fight him. She told him she was a virgin, 
But this only excited the man even more. After he raped her, Posno ripped the film from the woman's camera, wiped his fingerprints off the camera, and threw the film overboard into the water. Posno returned the victim to John's Pass on Madeira Beach and sped off. The next day, the victim went to the police, but authorities were not able to get any type of physical evidence. Now, what she did give them was a description of her attacker and his boat. Police believe that the man didn't kill this woman because her friend could have identified him. Madeira Beach police circulated to other police agencies a description and a composite sketch of the suspect, along with details about the boat where the rape occurred. The boat was an older model, 16 to 20 foot fiberglass power boat, inboard outboard, with a bow rider, faded blue hull, white interior with dark blue seats, and a navy blue bimini top. The seats were pedestal style. Posno was last seen driving a black 1988 or 1989 four-door Suzu Trooper with Florida license plates. The victim described him as a white man with short reddish blonde hair and a light-colored mustache. He was about 33 years old, but looked closer to 40 due to his pockmarked face and tan complexion. He stood about 5'8 and weighed around 200 pounds. After the murders of Joan Rogers and her daughters, Madeira Beach police thought there might be a connection due to the similarities, but St. Petersburg police weren't so sure. It wasn't until they learned that there was no boat registration in Florida for Dave Posno or other similar names that they started paying attention. And when authorities didn't find information on Dave Posno, the man then moved to the top of the list of suspects in the murders. One thing investigators thought was possible was that the man who killed the women of the Rogers family may have been a serial killer, and it was likely he had killed again after June 1989. They also firmly believed that he lived in the Bay Area. In January 1991, Detectives Sandra Cummings and John Gehagen of the St. Petersburg Police Department interviewed 70 people during a 10-day trip to Ohio. When they returned to Florida, they presented the information to the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, Virginia. This enabled the FBI to compile a psychological profile of the killer. The profile described a serial killer who charmed Joan Rogers and her daughters into an evening trip on his boat and planned and carried out their killings. He most likely raped and drowned the women because he enjoyed the suffering of others. The profile also said that the killer would appear to others as a confident and controlled person who went to work every day and was probably pretty well off financially. He was an experienced killer, and while he likely killed after the murders, he used other ways of disposing of the bodies of his victims. At that time, no other homicides were linked to the Rogers case. In May 1991, armed with the new profile, detectives investigated two potential suspects and released a more complete scenario of the murders. One of the suspects spent winters in Tampa Bay and had a criminal record. The second suspect lived there year-round, but by September 1991, police ruled them both out because the men had alibis for June 1st, 1989. 
Police now believe that Joan and her daughters met the killer after they checked into the Days Inn on June 1st. They had directions and instructions to look for something blue and white and join the killer at the boat ramp in the evening. The women were last seen in the hotel restaurant at 7.30 p.m. Authorities also said the women were alive when they went into the water. Not giving up, detectives decided to focus on the handwritten directions on the brochure. As we talked about earlier, they had already figured out the handwriting did not belong to either Joan or her daughters. Although it was possible that Joan wrote the words Boy Scouts and Columbus. Authorities released a picture of the brochure and asked the person who provided the directions to give them a call. The brochure was titled Clearwater Beach, Your Destination Island, and it showed a small map of Clearwater and St. Petersburg that was not drawn to scale. It's believed that the trio picked up the brochure at a welcome center off I-75 in Jennings, Florida, just inside the Florida state line. Authorities took photos of the printed directions on the brochure and put them on five billboards in West Tampa. The next day, a person came forward who recognized the handwriting as belonging to a man named Oba Chandler, who was then 45 years old. The person was either a friend or a relative of Oba's. That person took a sample of Oba's handwriting to the police for comparison, and the samples matched. Authorities quickly put Chandler's home under surveillance and kept watching it for two weeks. Finally, on September 24, 1992, police arrested Chandler and charged him with the 1989 rapes, but not the three Rogers murders, although he became the prime suspect in that case. Oba Chandler Jr. was born on October 11, 1946, in Cincinnati, Ohio, to Oba Chandler Sr. and Margaret Johnson. He had an extensive criminal history going back to January of 1969, when he was arrested in Cincinnati for stealing women's wigs valued at over $1,300. Two years later, he was arrested for disorderly conduct after he was caught peeping through windows at women and masturbating. Around 1976, Oba moved to Volusia County, Florida, where he committed more crimes. He was charged with armed robbery, burglary, kidnapping, and possession of marijuana. He was accused of breaking into a home in Holly Hill near Daytona Beach and holding the homeowners, a man and a woman, hostage before tying them up with stereo and telephone cords. He then stole the couple's dog, a rifle, and another gun before fleeing the home. He was arrested a week later at his Daytona Beach apartment that he shared with his uncle. It was during this arrest that authorities found a small amount of marijuana in his home. In 1977, Chandler pleaded guilty to a robbery charge and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Five months later, he escaped from Doctors Inlet Road Prison near Palaka, but details of the escape weren't released at the time. Over the next five years, Oba Chandler was arrested at least three times by Florida police, twice for loitering and prowling, and another for tampering with a coin machine. In each case, he was convicted and paid small fines. Police never realized he was an escaped convict, mostly because he used various aliases and false identification cards. He also had multiple social security numbers. In December 1978, 
he obtained a Florida driver's license under the name James Wright. In 1982, Chandler was once again arrested after a three-month investigation centered around counterfeit money led Florida authorities right to Oba Chandler. When they opened the trunk of his car, they found $8,340 in fake 20s. He was convicted and sent to a prison in Texas until his 1984 release. Oba returned to Florida from federal custody to continue his sentence for the Volusia County robbery. He was released on December 12, 1986. He left Florida for a couple of years, but returned in 1988. That year, he married Deborah Whiteman, and the two had a daughter together named Whitney. Oba had other children from previous marriages and relationships. The couple bought a $110,000 home on Dalton Avenue in Tampa Shores. It was a three-bedroom, two-bath home that backed up to a canal leading to Tampa Bay. There were two davits behind the home for lowering and raising boats. Around this time, Oba worked as an aluminum contractor and obtained an occupational license in 1989 from Hillsborough County and a state permit in April 1990 to do that kind of work. In September 1988, two months before he and Deborah bought their house, Oba bought a 21-foot 1976 Bayliner boat an outboard-style pleasure craft made of fiberglass. He also registered a magic tilt boat trailer with the state, listing as his address the home of Barbara Levy, who was the Director of Administration for the Hillsborough Planning Commission and a friend of Oba's. Oba sold this boat for $1,000 on August 28, 1989. This was about three months after the Roger family murders to a man named Robert Carlton of Tampa. It was not long after this, Deborah started noticing a change in her husband. He had a temper and he frequently yelled at her. He didn't sleep in the same bed as Deborah. They hadn't been intimate in months. Deborah threatened to leave with their daughter, but Oba told her that was not going to happen. And in fact, he physically blocked her path. He then pushed her into a door bruising her arm on the door jam. Once the composite sketch of the Madeira Beach rape suspect appeared in the local media, Oba Chandler vanished into thin air. Oba Chandler's son, Jeff Chandler, told Deborah that his sister, Crystal, had called him from Ohio and told him that their father confessed to killing Joan Rogers and her two daughters. Deborah spoke to Oba shortly after and encouraged him to come home. It took a while, but on Thanksgiving... Obert Chandler finally returned home. Deborah asked him flat out if he raped the Canadian woman, but Oba denied it. Later, Oba's sister, Lulu, asked him if he killed the Rogers woman, and he said no. Things went back to normal for the Chandlers, at least for a while. In 1990, the Chandlers moved to California, where Oba became, of all things, an informant for U.S. Customs and the Drug Enforcement Agency. So, Mort, there's a few things here already that are very hard to believe. And maybe hard to believe is not the right word. I mean, you know, in the 70s and 80s, police arrested him a number of times. And they could not figure out that he was on the run as an escaped convict because 
He was using different aliases. He was able to get real IDs in the name of another person, but he was definitely arrested and convicted for drug possession. Now, all of a sudden he's in California working for the DEA. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up and this is in the nineties. I mean, they not able to figure out that he has this record or are they very much aware of it? And they're using that because, okay, this guy knows the trade in some former fashion. So he would make for a great informant. Yeah. And by that point, he does have a record. So he might make for the perfect informant versus someone that has squeaky clean, uh, no street cred, so to speak of. Well, it's kind of hard to inform on drug dealers if you're not dealing in drugs or <laughs> to some extent, right? You have to be involved in the process to figure out who the players are to be able to give that information to whatever agency you're informing for. Oba and Deborah moved back to Florida in 1992, settling in Port Orange near Daytona Beach on March 25th, 1992. A woman told police her sister lived two houses over from a man whose boat and truck matched the description of the suspect in the Madeira Beach rape case, as well as the triple murders. The same neighbor recognized Oba Chandler as the man in the composite sketch, but she didn't stop there. She even provided a sample of Oba's handwriting. It came from a contract for work that Oba had done for her on July 31st, 1992. A second woman called police to say that she recognized the handwriting on the billboards. It matched the writing on an estimate for a screened in enclosure her mother received before hiring Oba Chandler. Police took a photograph of Oba and they compared it to the composite sketch. There was no doubt he bore a striking resemblance to the sketch and he fit the description of the suspect as well. Money problems drove Oba to commit armed robbery on September 11th, 1992, 13 days before his arrest for the 1989 rape at Madeira Beach. Oba stole $700,000 worth of jewelry from a Pinellas Park man. He was later charged with the armed robbery in October 1992. After his arrest, authorities traveled to Hamilton, Ontario on September 10th. In a Holiday Inn room, the Canadian rape victim positively identified Oba Chandler as her attacker from a package of six photos. His face was in the third picture. She then signed and dated the back of that photo. On November 10th, 1992, Oba Chandler was indicted on three counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Joan, Michelle, and Christy Rogers. He was a match to the palm print found on the brochure. The trial took place two years later, and Oba Chandler took the stand. He told the court he had met the Rogers family and had even given them directions to their motel, but he never saw them again until he saw their faces on the billboards as well as in the news. He also admitted to being out on his boat on the night of the murders, but said the boat had a fuel leak that drained all the gas from the tank. He said that he couldn't get anyone, including a passing coast guard ship to tow him in. 
But it came out that there was no Coast Guard ship in Tampa Bay that day. Furthermore, a Florida Marine Patrol mechanic testified that Oba's story about the fuel leak just could not have happened. The Canadian social worker was also in court. She remained unidentified until trial. Her name is Judy Blair, and she, along with her friend, Barbara Mottram, who was in Florida with her in 1989, both testified in court. Judy's testimony was emotional and very believable. Her memory of that night was solid as she told the court how a casual boat ride turned violent. In September 1994, Oba Chandler was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder and later received three death sentences. On November 15, 2011, 17 years after his arrest, Oba Chandler was executed. He maintained his innocence, saying, I never killed no one in my whole life. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. He also stated that his last words would be, kiss my rosy red ass. But when asked by prison officials if he had any last words, he simply said, no. Oba Chandler also left a note behind in which he wrote, you are killing an innocent man today. Yeah, Morph, it seems like a lot of times these guys are, they're big and bad. I'm going to say, kiss my rosy red ass right up until the time when it's about ready to happen. And then a lot of that bluster seems to fade away. In 2014, authorities announced that Oba Chandler's DNA linked him to the 1990 rape and murder of 20-year-old Ivalice Berrios Begarisi. Joan, Michelle, and Christy Rogers were buried on June 13, 1989 in Zion Lutheran Cemetery in Van Wert County, Ohio. How Rogers later remarried to a widow named Jolene, and they still reside in Van Wert County. The last article that we could find about Hal stated that he was still farming and had started raising hogs and growing corn. So, Morph, as we wrap up this case, you know, there is no doubt Oba Chandler was a very bad guy. The court said he was. He got the harshest sentence that anyone can receive and was ultimately put to death. I go back to Joan, Michelle, and Christy, a mother and her two daughters, right, from small town Ohio, wanting to go on what should have been this amazing trip down to Florida, right? We're going to go to Disney World. We're going to go to Epcot, Bush Gardens. We're going to try to pack in as much fun as we can in a short amount of time. And then you meet a monster like Oba Chandler. And the next thing you know, they're gone. It's a terrifying story. It's a terrifying thought. Yeah, their final, that final boat ride must have just been horrific for what they went through, all being sexually assaulted and thrown over a boat tied to cinder blocks and the police later revealed that they were alive when they went overboard to, to know that they saw each other going overboard while being alive. It had to be horrifying to know that they were about to die and there's nothing they can do to stop it. Well, and I think you add on top of that, the three of them having to see what was happening to the others, right? They're still alive during these very brutal vicious sexual assaults. I I can't even imagine 
a mother being helpless, having to witness something like that happening to her daughters, you know, or, or, or a daughter seeing that happen to her mother, to her sister, it sickens you. And it's scary that there's people like Oba Chandler out there, but as we know, because there's no shortage of episodes and cases that we do, that there's a lot of these twisted people in the world, unfortunately. There is, and it's the randomness sometimes of it, right? A chance meeting with a very bad person, or maybe you don't even meet them, but you unknowingly somehow catch this monster's eye right? You're just walking and a person sees you and in their mind, they target you for death. That, that is a scary thought, man. Yeah. This, this case is just all around terrifying. Thanks goes up to Debbie Buck at truecrimediva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. As always, if you haven't done so yet, take a minute. If you love the show, go out, give us a five-star rating That helps us out tremendously. Keep telling your friends, you know, this word of mouth. I can't state how important it is to the podcast. And if you're active on social media, so are we. So you can find us on Twitter with the handle at Criminology Pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast or by searching for our Facebook discussion group, which is Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. All right, Morph, so that wraps up the episode on the Rogers murders and the horrible person that was Oba Chandler. You and I will be back with everybody next Saturday night with an all-new episode. So until then, this is Mike. And Morph. And we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.